Hey everybody, this is Derek. This is Mark. What's up? It's been a little while. Yeah, I, I don't, I, you know, just haven't been doing that well. I've been going through <laughs> brazen heads withdrawal. I have not been doing that well. Holy moly, I yeah, guess. Yeah, how long were you sick for? And so yeah. you had COVID. I got COVID in 2023, but I guess it's going back around <laughs> you again. You're the last guy to get COVID. Yeah, well, oh, the, Derek, um, if only you uh, had that eighth booster. Yeah. You stopped at seven, and, and that's what screwed you, man. Yeah, definitely. Just stop wearing a mask. <laughs> yeah, I. Um, well, first, first we couldn't record because I was actually out of town, uh, so we had to travel. And then when we were traveling home um, from uh, Pennsylvania, we were on this flight home, and. Um, we sat down in our seat on the plane, and immediately the guy behind us in the the seat behind uh, the row behind us on the plane was just like he was asleep, but he had like that sleep apnea sound where he was just like honking his head off while he slept, just like ripping these crazy like erratic snores, uh, not like a steady cadence, but just Did like he have these a fat erratic. Neck? And and I looked behind him, and it was a huge. I thought Samoan looking guy. I didn't get a really good look at him, but I thought he looked to me like a big Samoan guy. So and fat I was like, neck. and I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. You know, this is probably the kind of guy who's likely to snore. No big deal, whatever. Um, and he was honking the entire time on the flight, but I, you know, put in my noise canceling headphones and no problem, whatever. And then when we were getting off of the plane and like standing up to get our stuff and like waiting in the aisle to, to get off, I noticed that actually what it was is that him and the lady he was with, his wife or whatever, um, were both just miserably sick. Um, and and Ellen had noticed it the whole time, and she was, like, nervous the whole time. And she actually wound up putting a mask on during the flight and everything because she's like, oh, God, these people are going to give us something. And I didn't really even realize it until she clued me in when we were getting off the plane. And then... And doesn't Ellen hate that stuff? Like, doesn't what? she hate that about flights, like just people breathing on each other? <laughs> well, I think I think that's very, yeah. I mean, I would say yes, but also so I, I guess everybody so hates does, that. Just so does everybody. But I, I think I remember Ellen in particular really like cluing in on that stuff. <laughs> yeah, she probably had like a bit about it. Like she went, she did a riff about it at some point, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, so like, and then the last couple times that I've flown, including when we came back from Egypt also, I was under the weather like right after the flight. And I always just chalk it up to like, ah, you know, you're breathing this weird air for a long time. And like, maybe it just kind of messes up my throat or whatever. And so like, yeah, I swear the last three times that I've flown, I've had this kind of thing where like the next day I'll get a sore throat or I'll be really mucousy or whatever. And then like maybe a couple of days after that, I'll have like a sniffle or something. And then it just goes away. Like whatever, no big deal. That has definitely happened to me consistently the last three times that I, that I traveled. Um, and it happened again this time, kind of, I was just like, yeah, you know, not feeling that great, but you know, whatever, I'll be fine. And then it wasn't until like literally a week later, um, that I actually like finally took a test, uh, and was positive for COVID. But really what happened was that as soon as we got back from that trip from PA, um, like, you know, that, that trip was a whole ordeal onto itself. I'll tell you about it when we're not recording. But, you know, we had to we well, had to. you told go. me about it beforehand, and I was just kind of shaking my head like, yep, have yeah, we fun had, with that. Yeah, we had to do a lot of labor and a lot of hard work emotionally and physically uh, on this trip to Pennsylvania. It was all for the best. Everything was fine. But, like, you know, it was, it was kind of draining. Um, and when we were, like, back home, I swear on, like, the first day we were back home. And we even talked about it when we were in PA. 
me and Ellen were like, man, we really have to have uh, you guys over for Korean barbecue. Like, the, we're just looking forward to, like, man, we got to do, like, a friend <laughs> hang instead of, like, a family obligation, like, for once. You know, we're overdue for hanging out with you guys. And uh, so we're all, like, looking forward to it and all psyched. And then, of course, yeah, we test positive, like, right away. So, yeah, anyway, I wound up being sick for pretty By much the way i i invited myself over for korean barbecue well that was yeah exactly well that was what was that was the other funny thing about it was that you actually texted us like you had read our minds uh and it wasn't in, that's right and then i forgot the timeline there and we were like you know yes like let's do it and then it was and then yeah we wound up testing ellen actually tested negative uh because we weren't feeling great and she decided to take a test and she tested negative and we're like okay fine full speed ahead even though we're not feeling great i'm sure we'll just get over this and then the very next day we tested positive and it was like (laughs) it was like super positive it was like we have super positive results like you're supposed to see like a faint line on the test we saw like a mega mega dark red line like or just (laughs) our snot was infused with antigens so anyway i wound up being sick for I mean, I would say basically like two weeks straight. I mean, it was bad. It was, and it was worse for her. Um, she, she got it worse than I did, but anyway, long story short or long story long. Um, I am feeling fine now. I have like a lingering cough, like a lingering, like chest congestion. Yeah. Cough, like annoying kind of like thing that I can't quite clear, but it's no big deal. The other thing that was really I'm weird and noticeable through one of the COVID holdouts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was it texting makes sense. people. You guys are the last people to get it. You know, well, I was texting years. people, like, like telling them about it and stuff. And yeah, we were all just saying, like, what year is this? Like, how is this possible? You know. Um, but then when I went to go buy tests, um, I had to go to three different stores to get tests. They were all sold out, and they told me at the Walgreens that like people have been buying them out in big numbers, and there actually is another like wave going around now. And my boss at work told me that too. That they're kind of hearing through the grapevine uh, at work that there's been a lot of COVID outages recently. And definitely, obviously these people behind us on the plane had it. So I guess it's never really like fully going away. It's just sort of fading into the noise of flu season. It's just here. Yeah. It's like, if we didn't have a test for it, you know, I guess you would just think about it now at this point as just, you know, getting sick amongst all the other different ways that, you know, people get sick on a seasonal basis or in a, you know, whatever, uh, um, in a viral way. But, Anyway, yeah, it is what it is. It's fine. I, I wouldn't surprise me, honestly, in retrospect now to think that, like, maybe I even had it, like, once before, like, one of those other times when I was sick after a flight. Maybe that just was COVID. And, but I, I did test myself, and I was negative in those previous times. But who knows? Maybe I screwed up the test or whatever. Anyway, yeah, long story even longer now. I guess it's all well, good. I, I'm We're glad you're good now, even with all your AIDS. Mm-hmm. You know the thing that was crazy? You had it at some point, right? <laughs> Your immune deficiency syndrome. Yeah. Yeah. You did get it at some point back then, right? AIDS, yes. Yeah. <laughs> All the crystal meth and BFing, of course. <laughs> yeah, that'll do no, it. I, I got it like September 2021. So even did it kind of took a while for me. Did you... um? notice yourself like getting tireder quicker like that like it affected your like cardiovascular oh yeah that, that that's like a the main sign yeah that mm-hmm. you couldn't walk around that was the thing that was most surprising to me was just like yeah trying to do a normal thing like we tried to go for or we did go for a walk down to the beach you know after we weren't like super mega contagious um 
and uh like it was hard to do this walk that would be like a normal like you know very basic thing to do yeah that, that's the most salient thing about it I mean, yeah. it's like a flu except there's that yeah it's, it's all the other things in a flu yeah well i don't know if you had any uh <clears throat> projectile bodily fluids coming out either end no, I, I did not have uh, vomiting or diarrhea, although that's not true of everybody in my household. Oh. Put it that way. <laughs> so the bird that you guys got got COVID. No. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's right. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, it did give me a chance to rewatch uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, which I'm almost done with. I never made it all the way through the first time. Um, but I'm like two episodes episodes away from finishing it this time, so I'm getting all the real um, psychological, depressive Freudian lore uh, this time. Great show, really cool show. Uh, I'll probably talk about it more after I finally finish it. But man, it's that's good stuff. Yeah, I, mean, I guess it's good for an anime. I just. It's like one of those things, you know, like just like guys are into cars and they have like a car chip in their brain. And like some guys are in anime. They have an anime chip in their brain. I just didn't get that chip. I guess I kind of get anime. Some of it makes sense. I get some of the Miyazaki stuff. It's good art direction, I I guess you would say. Yeah, I've still never seen um, any of his movies. I got to do that. It's just, I don't know. I just kind of miss that. I, I guess it's fine, you know. Yeah, it's just you know, we talked cool, about that I mean, before in the Brazen Heads, right? Yeah, yeah, we have. Okay. It's just a really. I'm surprised you don't really hear about that show more as just being. I mean, you do. Obviously, it's like one of the most respected animes. I'm not like selling it short or anything, but like it's a really good. Everybody needs to talk story. about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I am well, a little bit surprised that Peaks, it isn't so. more known. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Which we will get into today for sure. Um, yeah, there's some yeah. stuff in these past two episodes. I was thinking, well, that was a perfect five and a half minutes of television. Like you can. And these are not directed by that. Lynch either. These episodes, but they're still good. Yeah, they're great, man. The uh, great. second one, we're going to talk about two Twin Peaks episodes today. And one just minor trivia note is that the second one of the two uh, was written by Jerry Stahl, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he's a he's a famous Nick writer from the '90s. Uh, I mean, maybe. I actually don't know. <laughs> he could be. Um, no, Nick Stahl's a terrible actor. He almost ruined Terminator 3. <laughs> no, he's good in it. I so like, I'm, I like I'm the... guessing he got in the business because of nepotism. So. Well, now I got to look this up. I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's that rare of a name, but I'll try to look it up. But um, Jerry Stahl is a writer. He's kind of famous for being a sort of like 90s, like uh, grunge... Uh, like heroin kind of writer, like underground guy. Uh, if you ever saw the movie Permanent Midnight, Ben Stiller is playing Jerry Stahl. It's like a biopic type thing, I believe. I think I got that right. And um, anyway, yeah, he was like a very notable writer uh, of the time. So I think it's like noteworthy uh, that he wrote that episode. And there is there is some good tidbits in that episode, oh. which we'll get into later. W- which episode was that? That was the second one uh, of the two that we're going to talk about today, which is Twin the one Peaks that includes... 11. Yeah, Laura's secret um, diary. Yes, which includes like the scene with the judge talking to Leland, which I really love. We'll talk yeah, about that. Yeah, what's when with we get that there. man? Jeez. Yeah, he mentions Valhalla. Like that's a good little writerly. <laughs> yeah, what are you talking about? Yeah, 
Yeah, that that was a great scene. I, I wasn't even thinking about that scene when I said the perfect five and a half minutes of television, but yeah. It's the only episode of Twin Peaks that Jerry Stahl wrote for. He did also go on to write some uh, CSI, some, uh, yeah, he wrote on ALF. That's funny. And uh, and he's buddies with Mark Marin. He wrote some stuff for Marin's TV show, and he's been a guest on Marin and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, um, yeah, he is not uh, Nick Stahl's father, from at least not what I'm seeing on Wikipedia, but good guess. Um, I guess one other quick thing I'll mention up top is that I rewatched some Tarantino. Um, why bother trying to like watch some other movie that you haven't seen before uh, when you could literally just watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, over and over again and never get sick of it? Uh, I mean, and, that's uh, yeah, that's yeah. Well, uh-huh. and especially when you're sick, you don't want to watch anything new. At least I don't. Yeah, that's true too. Um, but yeah, yeah it rewatch. Sounds I like watched, a joke, but I, I seriously know I'm getting sick when I think, you know, I want to watch some Entourage. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> like that show really makes a lot of sense when your brain doesn't work, but then afterwards you're like, oh god, <laughs> what's with Turtle? Why why would I even care about Turtle for two seconds anyway? Yeah, I've never seen that show. I just know a lot about it from hearing people discuss it and make fun of it over the years. Basically, it's, I mean, it's I, it a great like, show. It's also a great show to make fun of. It can yeah. be both things. Like, oh yeah, it was like a show TV. that everybody watched, but then also we're all all making fun of. Well, it's like. But but obviously you like it regardless of the fact that you're making fun of it. It's one of those things. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I rewatched uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I also watched the extended version of Hateful Eight, which is on Netflix. Um, it's the one that's like broken up into four, like roughly hour long chunks instead of being like one feature length edit. It's it's really no different at all in any way that you would really care about. Uh, it's just like slightly more dialogue and, and stuff um nothing major was but, that the uh, one that was in the the movies initially that the uh um yeah that, that that was released initially was that the one they've done a couple different like versions of it when we went to go see it in the theaters it was not this extended version i think this particular extended version was made specifically for netflix but when we went to go see it in the theaters it was broken up into two pieces with an intermission that had like an overture playing uh, during the intermission, like what they used to do yeah. for like 2001 and Ben. Yeah, maybe that's stuff. what I'm thinking of. Yeah, because I think I remember some some kind of title cards coming up throughout the movie. Yeah, and it, it does have title cards between the chapters, even in like the regular theatrical edit uh, as well. I think Tarantino, because he's just such like a filmy guy and likes all that retro stuff. Like that's just one of his things is that. He likes to have you know different versions. You know, there's a there's a uh, a version of Kill Bill that is both pieces edited into one, uh, just like double length movie, which like I've never seen. I'm not sure how to really access that, but um, he likes to do that kind of thing. And obviously, Grindhouse is that type of thing too. It has just watch mo- the movies versions. back to back. You could do that. Yeah, that's one way. Yeah, finish one, get up, go to the bathroom, come back. That's right. That's right. Um, Play some Leonard Bernstein. Do you hear the controversy around that? No. Brad Bradley Cooper is uh, being accused of Jew face because he's playing Leonard Bernstein in this, and they have like a, a nose and a chin on him or something. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I was just looking for stuff to talk about at the top of the show. 
Well, it's only fair to be looking for stuff to talk about uh, because the whole essence of that story is people looking for something to be offended by. Yeah, I mean, pretty <laughs> much. That's, you that's found something. That's what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Um, I know. I was even. It's so funny how like our brains are poisoned by that type of thinking. Just like looking for what might be like problematic or not, right, uh, right, you know, exactly. representative about everything. Because I was watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I was thinking like, man, this is just a, a story about two white males. You know, two two, <laughs> two white males being. Uh, yeah, where's their black friend? I'm a fan. Yeah, with like a savior. You know, it's like a savior narrative about how like two white males prevented this. You know, historical tragedy of the of the Manson murders, and it's just yeah, that's what. You know, obviously, I'm able to like think that thought and have a little bit of like uh, irony attached to that thought. But you have to understand and and recognize the fact that there's people who are that thought is occurring to them, and there isn't any sort of like second guessing or, or irony attached to it. It's just literally the way that the culture would have molded a person to think. Um, yeah, yeah, and, like like that movie isn't keeping black people down, but it is like some kind of you know, leftover odor from this culture that did keep black people down. And that's why black people, you know, just whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, not saying that take like, it to mean that. Right. And I'm not saying that like people were saying this about once upon a time in Hollywood. Although I bet if you went looking for it again, if you were yes. trying to be outraged, I'm sure yeah, that you go you could to salon.com and just search once upon a time. I'm sure that it is there, but that's sure. the whole thing is we don't want, let, let's not do that. Let's not look for things <laughs> to be outraged about on both sides. Let's just instead enjoy things that are good because they're good. Uh, without thinking that they're all like some sort of yeah representation of modern ethics or something. And okay. the funny thing about it, like, or the, you know, whatever the, the, um, the what do you call it? The ultimate victory of this whole thing, in my opinion, does lie with Tarantino because, you know, all of these things that he's able to do with his movies, the the Inglorious Bastards and Beyond era of his movies, which I think is like a real pivot in his filmography. It, when he does these sort of like um, retellings, you know, and fabulizations of history, and like makes them nicer, you know, like Hitler loses, or, or you know, Django wins, or, or the Manson murders get prevented. Um, that is that is a good that does it does make you feel good. It is like a, a embodiment of what can be good about art. And he's able to, he, he can't really be canceled. I heard him, uh, I, I watched a clip on YouTube of Sway uh, interviewing him and asking him about the usage of the N-word in Django. Uh, and, you know, he talks about it very frankly and he was just very open and honest about how, like, yeah, I, I thought, it, you know, this is going to be really hard to do, this movie, where, like, I'm this, you know, rich white director making this movie about slavery. And uh, it was weird. I did feel uncomfortable about it, but I had to do what was right. And I talked to, you know, respected, you know, black, you know, members of the film community he mentioned like being friends with Sidney Poitier and all this kind of stuff. Oh, and, good uh, name drop. yeah. And ultimately he just did what he had to do because it was the right thing to do to represent the story in the way that is correct. Uh, and of course, like, as a result, you wind up with a great film that everybody likes, regardless of race. You know, you kind of like sidestep the whole thing by just being true and and genuine and talented, uh, which he is. And man, that goes extra super double for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. When you get to the end of that movie, um, and there's that scene at the very, very end of the movie where, you know, they invite Rick Dalton over for a drink and he gets to meet Sharon Tate, you know, and they, they, 
you know, just hang out and our buddies like after the whole thing has gone down. <clears throat> in my opinion, it's just like that's why it's called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's such a good fairy tale ending and it really does make you feel happy. Like he just it's we forget the simple ability of a good movie to just do something like that because so much of how we consume art and culture now is all about our you know reactions to things and and performing the right ethical response to things you know you can't like joker because he's a school shooter like all this kind of stupid bird-brained perspective on things it's like we lose sight of the fact that like no just a good movie can do its own thing in a completely unhindered creative way and you can just watch it and feel enjoyment and that's it it doesn't have to go any farther than that yeah anyway i just love tarantino that's it yeah, isn't it kind of sad though? It's just like he's going back in the past and remaking. Well, wait, was there a real guy named Django and did he die a slave or something? I don't know. I I think that one is more of a uh, just pure uh, fiction. Okay. Well, the the uh, the slaves were freed at least in America at some point, and Hitler did die. Mm-hmm. I think there's something particularly special about Once Upon a Time. Like this tragedy that happened that really symbolized the end of some cultural event. And it just didn't happen. Yeah. It's just, I, I like it and I understand the happiness you're talking about at the end of it, but also it just seems a little bit sad to me too. I always felt a little bit sad. I mean, it's still good. It's, it's definitely my favorite Tarantino movie. I don't know. Yeah, it's poignant because you know that this, you know what actually happened compared to what's being shown here, I guess. No, it's like he's going back on the past and he needs to correct this error for like America to be okay. Maybe that's some of my projection onto it. Hmm. Where it's like, no, that she can die. That's fine. And um, America's still going to be okay. Well, um... You know, the craziest thing about uh, Charles Manson is when, when you grow up, he's like, you, you learn all this mythology around him and, oh, he's this deadly guy and he's in jail for all these years and da 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 da. And then you find out what he actually did mm-hmm. and you realize he didn't really do anything. He just got these people to kill some other people. Right? Isn't it like a. Like yeah, because. Yeah, because he was trained by the CIA as part of MK Ultra to be a well, yeah, that's what yeah, I'm saying. Master, yeah, like a yeah, it's like he had trainer. to be played up as this really evil guy, as this really evil hippie to bring an end to the counterculture. Mm-hmm. It just yeah, didn't you know, make sense. It's like okay, yeah, I guess he needs to be in jail, but why is he synonymous with evil, mm-hmm. with deadliness? Yeah, and you know that you know the whole narrative, the whole helter skelter narrative was, you know, proposed and invented, or you know, discovered if you think that it's true, by Vincent Bugliosi, who is also basically the most famous JFK conspiracy denier. He wrote like a thousands-page book, like trying to you know support the Warren Commission report and debunk all JFK conspiracy theories. Um, yeah, and also was the guy who basically. In, in various ways, he played dirty with the Manson family investigation in order to get the conviction and uh, ignored or covered up a lot of the things that linked Manson to MKUltra. Uh, and yeah, the book Chaos by Tom O'Neill is a fantastic, fantastic overview uh, of a lot of that stuff. Uh, I mentioned it before in the show. But yeah, I don't think that's any sort of coincidence. And it is all related, like you're saying. Um, 
to this idea of the end of the 60s and and this way in which you know the counterculture was first of all arguably inceptioned into America by the CIA in the first place you know the LSD uh, yeah I'm the, sure it was you know uh, yeah. the, there's a At lot least of egged on of course there's a lot of interesting theories which are touched on in the uh, the net documentary the Unabomber one that we watched yeah. Um, there, there's interesting factoids there about sort of Ken Kesey, who was you know the original like Mary Prankster, uh, you know acid experiment guy, um, having some interesting connections to like underground military intelligence stuff. And you know, sure enough, it all comes out of you know these labs that are um, you know right there next to these like centers of operation. And as I mentioned, I think before in the Brazenheads, Manson before they moved to LA and became like the cult Manson family. Um, he previously was in San Francisco and him and the family were often treated at the free clinic that also like was used and known to be used as like an outpost for various like medical and psychological experiments by the government and on and on and on. There's a lot of things there, but um, so yeah, you could kind of make this argument that in the first place, the whole counterculture itself was kind of, again, inceptioned in some sense by the deep state because they were looking to see, can we do mind control? Is this going to work? Is it going to help us against the Soviets, et cetera, et cetera? Um, and then even if you don't buy that, even if you think that it was like a completely organic, I mean, at least some of it was natural and organic and you could understand how it would naturally uh, evolve out of the sort of like uh, response to, you know, 50 suburbia. It, it is sort of natural and understandable how hippie movement could be a thing on its own without being inceptioned. But anyway, <clears throat> also the end of it, this end of the era that, you know, has that, that is all tied into like, you know, the, the four assassinations, as Jim Dean Eugenio would say, you know, JFK, RFK, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Um, and especially RFK, because that's the one that was kind of like capped it all off. They, by the way, there's a radio clip in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where they mention Sirhan Sirhan being arraigned because that was 68 and the movie takes place in 69. Um, the end of this era, it's like you could even sort of theorize, again, if you're being tinfoil hatted, that it's like they intentionally did that assassination and maybe the Manson family killing as a way to kneecap the ability for this movement to go any further uh, in its aims of, you know, for example, ending the war in Vietnam, you know, which is not something that they were willing to do. Um, so, yeah, you know, even if it arose naturally, I think it was killed artificially, and Manson was a big part of that. Well, if you uh, listen to Camille Paglia, she says that it came to an end because of uh, issues that it had in its foundation. I, I did a whole YouTube video on it, Calting Cosmic Consciousness. Mm. Just go search on YouTube. I bet if you just Google Calting Cosmic Consciousness, my video will be, come up because nobody ever talks about that essay. Mm. But it's a good one. Yeah, I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah. Um. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of theories that the CIA basically started modern art or I guess you would say postmodern art mm -hmm. as, as like a sign of the Soviets. Like look how decadent we are. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some theories that the, the hippie movement was part of that. Yeah. Interesting. There's like a sign of decadence. Like, like look at our beautiful peacock's tail communists. Look, look what we can do. 
Well, dude, you know, I just look back over the last 50 years now and I just think everything's CIA. I mean, it's like the Maui <laughs> fires, you know, it's like the only thing you hear about that besides, you know, I guess how terrible it is and people are dying is, oh, well, it, it, the fire doesn't make sense. It only affected these poor people. Nobody really knows what started the fire. Like all these like mysterious, oh, now all these poor people are up. BlackRock's going to come in and buy up the land, you know, all this conspiracy theory stuff. And it's like, yeah, that's the world we're living in now. Mm. Because nobody trusts uh, the government. I mean, I think it's probably 50 years too late, but I think we're, we're just really, uh, you know, w- waking up to that. Yeah, and it's totally disconnected from political party now at this point, too. You know, with RFK Jr., you have this person who basically uh, is, in, in his own way, appealing to people who are conspiracy-minded regardless of political affiliation. He's able to be like you know, a super uh, green environmentalist on the one hand, but not really offend uh, people on the right wing. Well, depending on who they are, but you know what I mean, because he's at least willing to talk about stuff like this in a way that is, you know, a little bit more unfettered by like our usual, you know, Overton window of, of what you're allowed to think is real and, and not, you know, he's the kind of guy who will come out and say like, you know, yeah, they, they killed my dad or they killed my uncle. And, uh, and there's, you know, three, uh, major uh, investment banks that are buying up, you know, all the real estate that is available to be had in America, uh, and BlackRock is one of them. I was just, I, I just was hearing some coverage of the uh, Iowa State Fair, you know, where they do a lot of their like, uh, a lot of the uh, presidential candidates do like the kickoff of their sort of like serious uh, campaign, and uh, that just happened. And apparently, like RFK spent basically all of his time uh, on stage in Iowa talking about that real estate. Uh, issue uh, and, and other various sorts of you know related things where like eminent domain is being used to take land from farmers in Iowa to be used for federal purposes and et cetera et cetera. Yeah, I, I mean that's I get their conspiracy theories, but then there's just the government and like government's good, business is good, but then you get government and business to to team up to uh, essentially apply unnatural leverage on a market. And then you get things that look like conspiracies, like BlackRock coming in and buying up, you know, everybody's home, mm-hmm. for instance. Yeah. That's not a conspiracy. That's just what happens when business is in bed with the government. Mm-hmm. When they don't have to, right? They're not subject to market forces anymore. They use the government to change market forces so they get what they want. Mm-hmm. And of course, people just blame that on capitalism, and that's not capitalism. It never was. But I, I don't know. I. I I guess RFK Jr. says some stuff about vaccines. I don't know exactly what, but everything I've heard him say, there's been no conspiracy at all. It's just, from my perspective, and maybe, you know, maybe I'm just gone here, but it just seems like a lot of facts. Like, I I don't agree with everything that he says. Uh, You know, whatever, he's a socialist, I get it. But, you know, whatever, I voted for What's-Her-Face. I know she's a socialist, but overall, I liked her message, so I've still voted for her. Yeah. Yeah, it goes down to that thing of I, I, I've heard some I've heard some stuff like debunking various things that RFK has said. Like he's done interviews where he uh, the the specific one that I remember was like some journalist was doing a podcast where he talked about how RFK did some interview where he was talking about how some news segment that he filmed with whatever network, um, like he said some controversial stuff in it, and then the network like 
scud scuttled the, the the video segment and like didn't wind up using any of the footage or whatever. And RFK did an interview where he like described that as a conspiracy and made all these claims about how everything was going good and he worked for them wor- worked with them on the video segment for like you know a week straight and they were loving it and he was getting good feedback and then it like disappeared overnight and the reporter wouldn't like even acknowledge it to him. But then, like, I heard this interview with a, a, a person who was, like, inside, like, part of the news agency, and they just said that, like, he really misrepresented it. It didn't happen that way. Like, he was building it up for his own, like, political benefit. Like, ultimately, it's the kind of thing where, like, well, when you put it on a balance and really think about it, it's like, even if he was lying about that, like, even if he did uh, overinflate the importance of that story, it's one of those things where it's like, this is not debate club. Like I'm not like taking points away from this guy because like he didn't like pass the truth o meter at like a level 10. Like we're beyond that now, especially when it comes to like our very limited field of like political options where we can actually, you know, exercise our democracy here in this country. Yeah, this is what you get to do. You get to pick from these like four people, you know, that's your vote. Uh, so like, I'm not really, to me in the grand scheme of things that all that kind of stuff kind of comes out in the wash and i'm i'm more just respectful of the fact that regardless of if he's a dumbass about vaccines or a dumbass about 50 different things at least he's a guy who will come out and say they killed my uncle like that that carries a lot of weight to me like being willing to say that and i say the same thing about like marianne like am i a marianne williamson supporter no but i appreciate the fact that she can come out and just be like Look, the vibes are fucked. Like, like I'm not, I'm not here trying to be like. Yeah, you could tell it's them answering questions. It's mm-hmm. like beyond saying what. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. well, you're giving examples of it, but but really, what I think is just them answering questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, dude, uh, what's his face? DeSantis. He doesn't answer questions. Oh my god. Yeah. I mean, right. He just, just gets up there and give talking points. Right. Right. Or you know who else does it? Is that uh, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. That Indian guy Vivek. Yeah. He answers your questions. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe it's rehearsed, but you can, at least I get the sense that he really thinks, he really believes what he's saying. Mm-hmm. And that's cool, you know? And I think, uh, you know, we really got to come to terms with, like, what's, what are we really going to be about as Americans? You know, like, there's this uh, post on Twitter of this therapist who, uh, threw out his license, you know, left the APA and how he's like started making more money and like having a better results with his clients and all this stuff. And he, he realized, Oh, like the APA, the licensing board really gets in the way between you and providing, you know, decent treatment to people. Um, and it's like, yeah, like, like if you're still, if you're a therapist still wedded to the APA at this point, like you really need to go to uh, adult children's of, of ACOA adult children of, of alcoholics like you need to go to one of these yeah my my parent is an alcoholic and I'm in an abusive like co- codependent relationship with them if, if you're still kowtow into what the APA says and it's the same thing with our with our government and people will call you a bunch of names for supporting either the DNC or RNC but that's what alcoholic parents do to their children who they have groomed to be codependent with them yeah, it's and at like, a certain point, you just have to say no. I, I I need to give this up. It's there. There's a different way. Like you really got to get to that breaking point. And I think just the fact that there are these guys who are answering questions more directly. Like I'm sure they'll, they'll get you know totally tossed out, and who knows what's going to happen in this election. But yeah, right, right. Like I don't care that there's uh, 
presidential candidates that talk like that now. I don't think that's going to matter that much, but what that means culturally for America, that we want more of that. Right. Right, like um, that, that movie Bullworth, right, when uh, mm-hmm. Warren Beatty right, plays that politician who just goes nuts and starts speaking the truth. No, we have politicians doing that now. That's yeah. what RFK is doing. That that was the fantasy in 1997. It's happening. That's good. I mean, that's a step in the right direction. Yeah, the DNC and the RNC, they're obviously these corrupt organizations that have like clearly don't want the best for you. They want the be- best for BlackRock. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, th- th- there's a sign that people are, people are, uh, you know, yeah, we're figuring it out. I think yeah. we're going to be okay. Another way of saying the same thing, I think, is that you know, the real political divide that matters right now uh, in America and that is deciding elections, I think, uh, since 2016, uh, inclusive, is not the divide between left and right, but rather the divide between people who are committed to maintaining the appearance uh, of this, like, dignified institution of American government versus the people who don't care about that and are, are thinking outside of, of that structure. And we've seen it go both ways. We've seen, actually, I guess you could go back to the Tea Party and you could probably go back to Ross Perot. I'm not saying this is totally uh, sui generis, as DFW would say, but, um, <laughs> but, but it is a thing that's really, I think, super prominent now, where it's just like, in 2016, <laughs> you didn't even have to agree with a single policy of Donald Trump or disagree with the single policy of Hillary Clinton in the extreme case, and still you might wind up being the kind of person who would have voted for Donald Trump. And the reason why it had nothing to do with policy, nothing to do with governance. It had to do with the fact that this was a guy who was representative of being outside of the system that has been nothing but a failure and a letdown uh, and a bummer to people you know, since 9-11, basically. Uh, and this is something that I, I talk about with older people whenever I get the opportunity. I remember talking to uh, to my parents and and to to other uh, you know uh, people older than us about this in the past is that you have to really understand the perspective of somebody who's younger than me and you who literally has never seen America do anything other than embarrass itself basically and fail <laughs> in various ways you know whether it's like the war in Iraq the war in Afghanistan like just being sort of the butt end uh, of jokes you know from the international community and i'm not saying that that's all like justified or whatever i'm just saying like you have to understand that mindset uh, and what did Trump do? You know, he came along and said, drain the swamp. He said like, this is all stupid. Uh, I'm rich and powerful. So I know how this actually works. And I'm telling you, these people are not to be trusted. They're not to be respected. And, right. uh, man, that has a lot of, yeah, appeal. yeah. When he said, make America great again, that to boomers, that means make America racist again <laughs> to zoomers. It means, oh yeah, let's just go back to 1995. Right. Right, that this magical time, you know, in 1995, when like, not yeah, I I know. Yeah, The Simpsons know, was good. Every, everything was good. Right. MTV was good. Yeah, the Hank Scorpio episode came out around that time. <laughs> I mean, something was going on, right? Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely, and we're we're still seeing that play out. You can say that the 2020 election. Uh, Unless we're getting into like, you know, the election was stolen stuff. Uh, But you can say that what it was, was a, um, you know, rejection to that. It was was the boomerang effect of that, where people said like, look, we're done with this now. We got spooked, you know, whether it was just by the uh, indecency of Trump or COVID or both things or whatever it was. 
um, you know, it wound up being this thing that was sort of like a reaction to that. And that's what sets up 2024 so deliciously because unless somebody dies and, and definitely somebody could die. Like I'm not saying that's out of the realm. Oh, of dude, Somebody's dying. Yeah. But unless somebody dies, it is going to wind up being, uh, I mean, I would put my money on, uh, it's going to wind up being Trump and Biden again. I mean, uh, I saw a poll just yesterday, uh, of just, just of the Republican candidates. Biden was not part of this poll. Um, but yeah, Trump, Trump was polling at like high 50%. And DeSantis was at like 17. And then the rest of the percentage points were scattered among all the other Republicans. It's not even close. Well, well, this indictment's not helping the Democrats. I mean, I, I, well, I don't know. I was listening to Jimmy Dore. So I'll just say it. So, you know, he's obviously saying one thing about it, but he makes it seem like it's actually really helping Trump. I would say so. Dude, I want to vote for the guy. I mean, if he's not I mean, in jail, indict him. I I don't care if I disagree with everything that Trump says. It's just like I'm just voting against this, you know, b- banana republic kind of third world dictatorship crap that that we see. Like in, in Venezuela, we would see stuff like this. You know, it's like a it's like a double or nothing thing where it's like if this works and they actually get him in jail, well then yeah, I guess he's not going to be president, and you can I guess maybe presume that that's what they're really going for. But the 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 downside of that is that if you don't actually get him in jail, and it's it's going to take a lot of legal expertise and and for the chips to fall exactly right to actually get him in jail, uh, just because we have so many provisions for appeals and all that kind of stuff in our system, um, then yeah, it, it seems like a bad strategic move. Uh, the best thing that I've heard, the best like yeah. breakdown of this that I've heard so far was from uh, Matt Chrisman on Chapo, where he was just saying like, look, if you're a Democrat and you are so alarmed by the threat that Donald Trump poses. You think that he's a, an overarching, uh, um, fatal threat to the democracy or the American Republic or whatever. Like if you take it that seriously and yet you are focusing your efforts on getting him indicted, like th- that just proves to me that you don't really mean what you say, because if you actually cared that much, if it was really that much of a serious threat to you and not just showmanship, not just WWE, then instead the practical, pragmatic, correct strategic thing to do would be to try to convince the Democratic Party to field a better candidate than Joe Biden. But nobody is even talking about that. If you try to raise the possibility that Joe Biden shouldn't be the candidate, then you're some conspiracy nut who loves RFK or you're some orb worshiper who loves Marianne. And it's like, there's no option out there for you. So you have to toe the party line. You have to like slurp Joe Biden and ignore all of his obvious like decrepitude. Uh, and it just makes no sense. I just think it, it just, it, it shows you the lie that these people who are so upset and love being, uh, you know, literally shaking about how much of a scary threat Donald Trump is. They don't really mean that. They don't really feel that way because if they did, they would be putting their energy elsewhere. Yeah. Dude, I mean, dictatorship always fails. Trying to control people, it always fails. I guess every civilization ultimately fails, but especially dictatorship, right? It's because it's about control and you can't really control. Yeah. You can control for you know, and the alcoholic parent too. Like the same with the alcoholic narcissist that narcissistic parent where a lot of these patterns play out it it just fails eventually mm-hmm. and i i think i have to imagine i mean i'm i'm, I'm geez I'm, I'm definitely no political analyst 
I'm more a political analyst. Heyo. <laughs> Dude, I'm sorry. But I, I just have to imagine that this is just dictatorship losing control, like just trying to keep Donald Trump. Yeah, they don't have a plan. They just want power. It's, it's really not orchestrated conspiracy as some people would have you believe it is. It's just not that. They just... Right? And, yeah. and the internet's been terrible for it because people on, on 4chan start to talk and, yeah, you just can't control it. And... and you know, we've got to replace it with something. We can't just replace it with, yeah, whatever Marion Williams says. That's I'm not saying that's a good idea, but, you know, it just goes back to what uh, V says in V for Vendetta, right? I mean, he was right all along. It's just about fear. And when you're afraid, then they can control you. When you're not, then it, they effectively don't exist anymore. Yeah, I just think that it's, with this indictment stuff specifically, it's really foolish to, like, hear these recorded phone calls uh, or read these transcripts of like how corrupt and stupid and Keystone cops like Trump's side of the thing was and not immediately also have the understanding that all of these DAs and Democratic Party operatives and whatever are all also equally as dumb and well, corrupt. Well, obviously, because all this, the stuff with Hunter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All the stuff with Hunter's coming Perfect out example, and his right. connections with Ukraine and... It, yeah, is this all just a distraction from that? Well, that's not going to happen because we have YouTube now and you can ban some people, but obviously you can't ban everybody. That's going to look really fishy. Not that the DNC is in bed with YouTube to that degree, but you know, the, the point is it's just people talk and you can't really control it indefinitely. Right, right. and it's a, there's a whole culture war aspect to it too. Like the DNC doesn't have to be in bed with Facebook in a literal sense in, in, in order for Facebook to understand that the right thing to do was to, you know, sit on the Hunter Biden story. They, they probably made a decision that had to do with their board of directors thinking about potential financial consequences down the line. Like this might be bad for our bottom line. We might get overregulated or whatever might happen uh, if we don't, you know, make this political move. And so they did it. And uh, yeah. I don't know how to disentangle all of that stuff. Uh, from our society that's a whole big separate conversation but anyway it's all going to be relevant again over the course of this next year because we're getting back into election season again well i guess we had a lot of uh brewin politic talk that we had to get off our chest yeah yeah and all of it is ultimately just to say that <laughs> we're above it all who cares <laughs> fuck it <laughs> well and you and the listeners above it too everybody's above yeah. it Exactly. If you're yeah. a human and not yet a beast, you are above it. Yep. Yep. You got to find something else to do other than talking about politics online because it's none of that is real or efficacious. Um, so we talk about Twin Peaks instead. Yeah, that's what really matters. Uh, okay, so we're going to talk about two episodes, maybe, I guess if time permits. Um the first one, now we're getting into the third episode of the second season, so that would be episode 10 in the overall timeline. This is not directed by David Lynch. Um, the Log Lady intro, just because I've been doing this lately, I'll just I'll read out the Log Lady intro. Letters are symbols. They are building blocks of words which form our languages. Languages help us communicate. Even with complicated languages used by intelligent people, misunderstanding is a common occurrence. We write things down sometimes, letters, words, hoping they will serve us and those with whom we wish to communicate. Letters and words, calling out for understanding. 
And sure enough, letters will become obviously important in this episode because Ronette, off camera, uh, but something happens there, Ronette seemingly gets attacked uh, by the killer in the hospital. Her IV is poisoned and they find the letter B underneath her nail. Uh, which is yeah, great security there guys. Yeah. What? Well, they say she was being watched 24 seven. So that's mysterious. Yeah. Um, kind of a, okay. Yeah. Well, there's, we already know there's supernatural stuff happening and we'll talk about that more throughout these two episodes because Coop finally confides, uh, in Sheriff Truman and Albert about the giant, uh, and how his clues are coming true. Um, I think actually that happens in the same scene, I think, or near, near to it. Yeah. You know, I'm just realizing now I'm not going to be that helpful in this discussion because I have notes here, but I wrote them so long ago now. So Albert at this point, uh, chooses, talks about how he chooses nonviolence in his life. Uh, it, it's coming up in just a little bit. Yeah, that Albert okay. speech is coming. See, up. How do you know if yeah. it's in the hospital anymore? Or no, it's it's a on? little bit later on. So yeah, the next thing that happens is that Donna goes to visit Harold Smith, uh, the shut-in. Um, Dude, yeah, nineties guy. Yeah, yeah, very interesting oh, actor. Man. He plays a very good jittery weirdo. Um, I think he does a good job, although he's not very appealing <laughs> in a conventional sense. Um, but well, well, so he's a shut-in, so you think, oh, he's going to be gross. Oh, but he's actually, I mean, for a shut-in, he is Brad Pitt, right? Yeah, right. He's super handsome. And, yeah. and then he he dresses, you know, kind of quirky, kind of like a teddy bear, mm-hmm. like like heavy flannels and suspenders. I love that look. Yep. They're just like this sensitive 90s guy. Pacific Northwest, early 90s look. I'm I'm in. <laughs> Dude, yeah. That's a sweet look. It's a yeah. definitely. But yeah, you know, there's anyway. a little bit of that little. It's not Lynch, but it's just it's inflected with that little Twin Peaks weirdness. Where when she first comes in, he goes, uh, uh, "Can I get you something to drink? Uh, would you like to wash your hands?" <laughs> it's like a weird thing to say, like out of the blue. Uh, but that's Twin Peaks for you. See, I didn't even pick up on that. Yeah, thanks for saying that. Yeah, yeah. just a bunch of stuff like that happens. That- and he mentions when they're talking about Laura. He says um, she liked to think of me as the mystery in her life. And he emphasizes the word mystery, which if you remember the, the Jacoby tape that they steal uh, where they listen to Laura's secret recording, um, she talks about the mystery man. Uh, and it's implied that you know, he might be the killer or, or somebody who's sleeping with Laura or something. Um, so, yeah, the emphasis on the word mystery is definitely put there intentionally and, and increases the intrigue. Um, but now getting to what you were talking about, the, uh, the Albert speech, <clears throat> we're back in the sheriff's station and, um, we're at the chalkboard and Coop is just pointing out like, look, let's look at the sketch that we have now of Bob, right? It's a sketch that was made by the sketch artist based on a description from Sarah Palmer because she saw Bob in a vision. And really now we're to the point where four different people have all seen this man that we know of. Uh, Maddie has been seeing him in visions. Uh, Sarah Palmer saw him. Uh, Coop has seen him, right? In Coop's original dream, it wasn't just the the little man in the red room. There was also a vision of Bob in there and the one-armed man. Um, and then finally, now, Ronette has seen this person, right? But actual, like, in reality. You know, if Ronette was attacked in the hospital and we're going on the theory that this is the killer, then that means that she just saw uh, this man. And when they showed her the sketch of him, she freaked out, right? So we, we, we know that she saw this guy. Uh, 
uh, in the train yeah, car. Yeah, she went crazy. <clears throat> so, yeah. I love that. Um, anyway, somewhere in that scene where they're powwowing about this stuff, Albert says some snide remark uh, to Sheriff Truman, and he almost decks him again. And that's when Albert gives his speech about how, you know, I believe absolutely in nonviolence and non-aggression. Uh, my concerns are global. Uh, I choose to follow the example of Gandhi and King. Um, and the owner, only counterbalance to vengeance and violence in our world uh, is love. I love you, Sheriff Truman. <laughs> he says, I love you, Sheriff Truman. It's a great <laughs> Albert moment. <clears throat> yeah. Well, it's like, you know, he's been such a jerk for a long time. They, the show obviously wants you to like him because they brought him back. Mm-hmm. Right? They, they even said that. The director called. They want me back. That's right. It's like, yeah, they just want you to like him. And hey, if if... If you want, if you want to be a likable guy in 1990. You got to talk about nonviolent resistance, <laughs> Gandhi, and and King. And it would have been funny if he was like, "And by the way, I'm going to be doing a, a benefit concert for uh, to free Tibet. Uh, yeah. I'll be appearing on stage with the Beastie Boys. <laughs> Something about apartheid, <laughs> right? Exactly, exactly. <clears throat> um, Okay, Dick Tremaine shows up, uh, one of the coolest characters in Twin Peaks. Uh, Dick Tremaine, Lucy's boyfriend. Dude, what's his music? I, I have the note here, Dick music is pretty great. How does it go? I, I forget oh, now. Oh, man, I don't remember now. I, I should have just watched this episode again instead of watching the other one. This is not a good... Okay, I got to remember this for next time because like, my notes are prodigious, but... Yeah, he, he's a good butthead character for sure. Um, but anyway, but, it, but it's just good characterization. I mean, it's on the nose, but so what? You right. know, it's a TV show. Like, what is this? It's character driven. Like, exactly. Let's get stupid yeah, with the it. plot line. That plot line doesn't matter. It's another one of those plot lines, just like the you know Nadine regressing to high school, which is coming up later. It's like that. That's just there for fun. That's just there to flesh out the show because uh, we don't want to just talk about Bob the whole time. Um, but speaking of which, um, we're still at the sheriff station here, and Leland shows up. And uh, he says that he knows the man in that sketch. He said back when he was a kid, the family, his family, Leland's family, would vacation at Pearl Lakes. And uh, two houses down, uh, there was a, a house there with this man. The name was Robertson. Uh, and he used to flick matches at me and say, do you want to play with fire, little boy? And that that was... Bob. So they send off Hawk to try to go to Pearl Lakes and investigate and figure out who lived there. Uh, so that's a good lead. Yeah, and he holds up the wanted poster in front of his face. You mm -hmm. know, the wanted poster with Bob in front of. Right. Oh, you mean like that's a uh, like that's a good like image because it's like putting Bob like yeah, it's Bob's right over really juxtaposing him. Yeah, good. Yeah. Which we've are, have we already seen that happen? Have we already seen Leland turn into Bob in the mirror, or is that later on? I think that's later. Yeah, that's later on. Okay. No, you, you still don't know yet. Yeah, okay. Um, whoops, spoiler, everybody. Delete that. Well, I mean, now, you know, I was thinking, if you're watching this, you don't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, you're thinking, oh, Leland's acting crazy because he killed Jock. Right. Yeah, that's right. And, in fact, that will all come uh, into play in, in by the end of this episode. Yeah. Um, Okay, uh, James and Maddie are talking, I think, at the double R, I think. And he just says, like, hey, does Donna seem different to you? 
Um, she came to visit me at the jail and she was acting all sultry. Like she wanted to do it with me right then and there. Um, and Maddie just like holds James's hand to like, you know, just listen to him and console him a little bit. But Donna of course walks in and sees them and, and gets pissed and leaves. Uh, and that's not the first time that or that's not the last time that'll happen. Yeah. I really like Donna's reaction to that. And then she brings up how she met, uh, Harold. Harold, yeah, thank you. Right, making him jealous. smart and sensitive and like nobody else I've ever met. Yep. And James in the dumbest voice goes, what's that supposed to mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just fun, fun high school. Good teenager stuff. Yeah, James is dumb. Yeah. I, li- I like the idea that James isn't sensitive, by the way, after they just like sang that song on the floor of the living room and stuff. Like, yeah, he's not sensitive at all, this guy. Added that song to my Spotify playlist, by the way, and all of the Twin Peaks uh, soundtrack. Ooh, nice. My life has gotten significantly better. Yeah, I'm sure I already, I'm, I think I remember saying this the last time that we recorded, but the opening credits music to Firewalk With Me, which has the saxophone in it, is like the best. I, I love that Twin Peaks music. It's so good. Um, but all the Twin Peaks music is awesome. Um, okay, the next thing is Audrey is still being held prisoner at One-Eyed Jacks. Like, yes, this plot line is still going. <laughs> it will still be going for quite a while here. It's like <laughs> no one's acting with very much urgency about the fact that this high school kid has been missing for like multiple days. And the whole reason this whole show is happening is because someone's murdering high school kids. Uh, whatever. We'll figure it out at some point. Dude, <coughs> it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, I know. And I, I love how they're like keeping her sedated with heroin. Yeah. It's like they're going to get her addicted to heroin just by giving her a bunch. Like it's a a 90s idea of how heroin addiction or drug addiction in general works. Yeah, if you just take enough, you get addicted. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And then Blackie says something crazy. Uh, We're going to do to her just like her daddy did to me. Yeah. So did Ben get Blackie addicted to heroin? Yeah, that's weird. We don't exactly know that maybe necessarily for sure. But we do learn later that Jean Renault is linked up with Blackie's sister, who Blackie hates. And also, Jean Renault is like the muscle. He's sort of like the protection racket that is like keeping One-Eyed Jacks secure. And Ben pays him to, to be like the muscle. Like just how like, you know, if you were running an illegal bar, you would pay the mob, you know, to keep you safe or whatever. So I do think there is something there where like, where like Blackie is sort of stuck there against her will because of her sister and Jean Renault and Ben Horn. Not that any right. of it matters. You know, it's all going to go away in about three episodes, but, <laughs> but yeah, there is a whole bunch of plot stuff there. <clears throat> Dude, um, it matters. Yeah. That's like the kind of attitude that says, Oh, having a dog's not going to matter. Cause they're going to be dead in three and a half years. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it still matters. It's, it's not my favorite plot element of the show. Although I do like, um, I do like, uh, Emery, the bald jerk off guy from Horn's department store, uh, because he's he's just like such a good like scumbag like nineties character TV uh, character actor. But um, yeah, yeah well, I was happy when he was shot in the next episode. Yeah, like oh good, we don't have to deal with him anymore. Not that he's annoying, but I just don't want to see him because <clears throat> he's yeah because he's despicable. So somewhere in there, like I said, I think at the beginning of this episode, Coop confides in. Uh, Albert and Sheriff Truman about the giant and about the three clues the giant has has told him. The first one was the man in the smiling bag, uh, which wound up being about you know Jacques Renault's uh, Jacques Renault in a body bag. Um, 
The second one was the owls are not what they seem. And the third one was without chemicals, he points. Uh, and that comes to fruition now because the next thing that happens is that Philip Gerard, the one-armed man, is at the sheriff's station showing some shoes uh, to Sheriff Truman because that's his job. He's a traveling shoe salesman. Um, but he sees the sketch of Bob and it sort of like triggers some sort of episode uh, and he needs to run off to the bathroom to take his medication. And we see him sort of like freaking out in the bathroom and saying like, Bob, I'm after you now. Uh, I know you're near. Um, so yeah, something's going on there and, and we'll learn more about that later. <clears throat> um, we also very quickly check in on Shelly. Uh, she's at the police station uh, and she's basically like trying to like put up a fight saying like, no, I can't testify against Leo. I'm not going to say anything against my husband, blah, blah, blah. And Coop just kind of humorously says, like, okay, Shelly, no problem. Thanks for coming down and, like, kicks her out. <laughs> like, and, like she's, like, protesting too much. Wait, or, what? Yeah, like, wait, what? No, let me give you my sob story. And he's like, okay, bye-bye. I, I want to complain some more. Yeah. Um, so that's, like, the, you know, Coop understands that, like, okay, something's going on here. They're trying to do some sort of insurance scam. Like, she's she's trying to pretend like she likes Leo and wants him back. And, and somebody's putting her up to that. So we've got to find out who that is. Um, no, I think Shelly does in fact like Leo still. Mm -hmm. She still loves him. And I think she loves him because Bobby's such a putz. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, they don't wind up together. If we fast forward to season three, they do not. They, wind they up. don't wind up together. You know, she never really, yeah, got her, uh, rid of these, uh, her taste for psychotic men. Right. Exactly. So yeah. Okay. Now back to and it all happened when Bobby said, I love you. Remember that look on Shelly's face? Yeah. But why would they show her face like that? Yeah, it was right? I mean, why would they believe that in the show, Derek? Yeah, he said, I guess I love you. I guess I love you too. Something like that. Yeah. Oh, do you think she was disappointed when he said, I guess? I don't think that's the whole story, but I think it's just indicative of like, yeah, just something's a little bit not all perfect right there. It's just a little yeah. bit unsynchronized. <clears throat> Um, okay, back to One-Eyed Jacks. Uh, we meet Jean Renault, who's played by Michael Parks, by the way. Classic. Uh, I mean, he's been in a bazillion things, but going back to Tarantino, he's he's he plays uh, multiple uh, bad dudes in Kill Bill. He's the evil sheriff uh, who investigates the crime scene uh, in Kill Bill, and he's also the uh, the guy that she goes to meet up with in Mexico uh, when she's trying to track down Bill uh, in in part two. Two different characters played by the same actor. Um, I think he's also in mm. Grindhouse, if I'm remembering correctly. But anyway, yeah, Michael Parks, good actor. Hmm. And uh, he's doing a fake French-Canadian accent here. And his whole deal is like... Oh, dude, and it, I love how over the top it is. Oh, it's completely yeah, over the like top. He's like a professional wrestler. He, he's, yeah, he's like... French he is. <laughs> I was going to say Pepe Le Pew, but yeah, it's a professional <laughs> wrestler that works too. It is, yeah, he's, he's like the, the French heel guy you boo against. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So his whole deal is, and this is a little bit actually hard to follow if you're trying to really follow the specific plot. Again, not that you need to, but what's really happening here is that Blackie and this guy Emery, the jerk-off from Horn's department store, they want to, like, like they've kidnapped Audrey. Like, they're, they're the reason why Audrey is being held hostage, because Audrey infiltrated One-Eyed Jacks, and, and, you know, they have to... You teach her a lesson or whatever, but they're sort of in over their head and, you know, who knows what to do. So they call in this heavy Jean Renault, who again is like the muscle. And he says like, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. 
uh, we're going to make this a, a, a ransom situation. I'll be the go-between. So I'll go talk to Ben Horn and get the ransom uh, sorted out. But I have a stake in this too because you guys have on your surveillance tape of One-Eyed Jacks the footage of this guy, Cooper. You know, and he's the guy who killed my brother, uh, Bernard, uh, or is responsible for my brother Bernard being killed, uh, and also Jacques, in a sense, since they arrested Jacques and he was killed uh, in the hospital. So Jean Reno wants revenge. So he wants Ben Horn to bring him Cooper and ransom for Audrey, uh, and he'll be sort of like the point person who runs that whole crime. Uh, so that's what's going on there. Man, don't, don't you just get the sense that the casting for Jacques Renault was absolutely terrible? Uh, what, you don't like the big fat guy? It just doesn't seem to fit. It just doesn't really make sense that that big fat guy... I, I think the, he should really look more like Jean Renault looks. Yeah, but he needs to be like a completely detestable... Like when he goes, bite the bullet, baby, and there's like like uh, saliva like on his mouth and stuff. Like you have to have a total... He's supposed to be disgusting. Yeah, right? I think so. And then remember that part in... um. Yeah. That really crazy scene in Fire Walk with me when you can't even understand what they're saying because they're partying at the roadhouse, and he says, "I'm as blank as a fart." <laughs> That's like classic. Like you have to have a real pig deliver a line like that, and that's Jacques Renault. I don't know. I think throughout that entire scene, I was just staring at Laura's boobs. So. <laughs> yeah, that's a uh, that that's man. Talk about. I wasn't really sure what else was going on. I've said before, man. Fire Walk with me is just so dark it just takes this whole thing to like an r-rated psychotic level and that scene especially is just like oh man it's it's yeah it's uh it's got a real vibe to it uh, pro and con yeah there are boobies that's 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 for sure but it's also pretty crazy yeah it's kind of weird partying too they just go to this back room and they're just drinking yeah pass around a drugged beer so that they like instantly are like <laughs> like completely yeah. in a stupor in five minutes sweet party guys yeah with like one song playing incessantly the whole time it, it ends with this really good shot of just a, a shot that pans along the floor and just shows like sawdust and cigarettes and bottles on the floor while that same like droning uh roadhouse music plays over and over again that's well cigarettes and sawdust on the floor that's sweet mm -hmm. but after you rock out to some paradise city or something <laughs> yeah right exactly like, you guys don't know how to party <laughs> that's I don't know. I yeah, I understand. There's this band called GNR. Yeah, it's anyway. a must be a Canadian thing. Um, yeah. all right. Josie comes back, or Josie, sorry, Josie calls Pete and says that she's coming back to town tomorrow. Um, and um, what do I have? Oh yeah, Harry. Harry will talk to her before official interrogation. Okay, so Harry gets wind of this too, I guess. And tells Cooper, like, hey, let me talk to her first. And at first, Cooper's like, ah, I don't know. You know, like, she's tied up with a lot of suspicious business. And then she left town, like, right when the mill caught on fire. Like, we got dead people here, you know, whatever. Um, but Harry's like, no, look, I need to. And, and it's like calling in a favor. And Coop's like, okay, say no more. You know, you know I got your back. Dude, I'm, I'm, I'm simping hard here. You got to go along with it with me. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, Coop is a, uh, a good wingman there. Um, Nadine is still in the hospital. Um, and so she had this, you know, suicide attempt a couple episodes ago, but now, 
Um, they're putting her in restraints, and Doc Hayward says that her body is pumping out adrenaline, adrenaline like he, he's never seen before, and she's already broken through the restraints before. Uh, and Big Ed sings to her, and she comes out of her coma, but she has regressed to like a, a high schooler. Um, and yeah, that's the start of that soap opera plotline. <laughs> yeah, why did he have to sing to her? Yeah, he's sensitive. Like, I'm annoyed for Big Ed, you know. <laughs> but the um, the next scene is awesome, and I actually kind of forgot about this. Uh, the scene where they hypnotize Dr. Jacoby. Um, so Jacoby is still in the hospital, um, but he's being tended to by his hot Hawaiian wife. Um, and then they come in, Coop and Truman come in to help hypnotize him to see if he remembers anything about the night that Jacques Renault was killed because uh, Jacoby was sharing a hospital room uh, with Jacques Renault. And so there's this sort of funny scene where like uh, Sheriff Truman has to hold up a crystal in exactly the right way to like send the vibes towards Dr. Jacoby. And he has a script that he uses for getting hypnotized. Speaking of Sirhan, uh, he's very susceptible to hypnosis. And he has this whole script about being like a golf ball uh, on the green. Uh, anyway, it's funny. They hypnotize him and they ask him about uh, does he remember seeing Jacques killer and the scene ends with him saying, I know him, but we don't know who it is yet. Um, but we'll find out later. Um, okay. Next scene. Dude, you, you skipped over a very important part. Mm -hmm. A few scenes ago, the triad guy stares at coops more. Yeah. Yeah. He'll be doing some other staring, uh, later on as well. He's going <laughs> to yeah, some other. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought like, wouldn't it be funny if, uh, if he just didn't do anything the entire show. Yeah. He's just standing around staring at people. Yeah. We never even find out who he is. Whatever. No big deal. <laughs> that would be awesome. Look, if he, as long as he beats the shit out of Hank, I really have no problem with that. So, but we'll get there later. Yeah. Um, okay. The next scene is a, a nice, a nice like kind of drama scene of Donna visiting Laura's grave. Uh, and, right. and just kind of yeah. like, you know, laying out their whole situation and she's afraid of losing James. Like she lost Laura. Um, you know, I love you, Laura, but the truth is most of the time we were trying to solve your problems. Uh, and you know what? We still are, uh, good stuff. Good scene. Good, uh, acting, good writing. Yeah. It's like Laura was the emotional core of the town, right? Yeah. Laura had and something. Now that that got destroyed because of. I don't know, like, like, what's it trying to say? Like, the town couldn't handle it or something? Yeah, it's like, it's like we knew Th this. That got destroyed. Everybody's just kind of, I mean, everything that's happening now is because of that, you know? The thing it's that the like show the reinforces, haywire. the show emphasizes over and over again, starting from the pilot, um, that the loss of Laura Palmer is not just like a random, you know, loss uh, or a random tragedy. There's something about Laura where the way that she intersected with everybody's lives, whether it was Meals on Wheels or the the dark shit with Leo and Jacques or, you know, the high school flings with James and Bobby uh, or her, you know, deep, you know, girlish friendship with Donna, uh, all of these things, uh, you know, it affected everybody in, in a way that had like the special sort of power and charisma to it. Uh, Laura was some sort of center of gravity. But the thing that's cool about this, I think, is that like, like Donna is really emphasizing that, that yeah, there was this special something that Laura had, this, this courage, I think she calls it, uh, and this strength. 
Um, but but look where it brought her. You know, like like I always admired that in you. I always wanted that in you. And and look what happened. Um, so it's like not only is the loss of Laura this thing that goes beyond a normal like in the Twin Perfect video where he says like the point of the show is to talk about how TV violence uh, is too superficial and it actually really means something in the real world. Um, yeah, there's that aspect of it, but there's also this thing where there's this. Yeah, this goes beyond that. Yeah, there's I like think. a dark like primal energy to somebody like Laura, which is related to the Black Lodge and and the whole metaphysics of Twin Peaks, I think, uh, where it's like, yeah, she, uh, she she had a dark side. She had secrets, uh, as they say. And there's something about that that just like reverberates. Like even after she's gone, uh, it's just like still rippling through everybody's life. And... Um, yeah, I guess that kind of relates to her father, Leland, as well, as we're going to learn more and more as we go on. Um, but the next thing that happens is that um, they they arrest Leland. Um, <clears throat> it's this kind of, it's this, it's this scene where basically, like, we've had this back and forth, this love triangle thing going on with Donna and Maddie and James. Um, and we just had this scene a couple minutes ago where Maddie saw... James and, and or Donna saw James and Maddie holding hands and got all mad and jealous and whatever. Well, Donna's been off, you know, running around uh, uh, with Harold and then talking to Laura's grave. And in the meantime, James has been looking for her. It turns out what happened is that James's mom, um, the drunk writer, uh, came home all loaded and was acting crazy and, and sent James into a, uh, you know, whatever. He, he got sad about it. Isn't he, she a poet? Uh, I thought he said she wrote for newspapers. Am I? Well, is she a poet? Pretty sure it was a poet okay. or something. Yeah, I remember him saying like she was good. She's really good. Yeah, yeah. She's his demon, you know. Exactly, right. So uh, so that episode happened. We don't see that. That's just off camera. But, but James went looking for Donna and couldn't find her. So he went to Laura's house and found Maddie there because he just needs somebody to, you know, console him. Um, so Don, uh, So Maddie is hugging him. Uh, and of course, yet again, Donna walks in on it. Second time in the same episode where she walks in on this very bad-looking situation. Oh, dude, they're making out. Are they? Are, did they wind up making out? Okay, forgot about that. Well, it's just ridiculous. And, and then, and then Maddie's playing innocent, like it's no big deal. But you can tell in the entire scene she's like trying to get James to make out with her. Like she's doing all the things. I see. She, she's laying on the girl game pretty thick there. I see. Um, so yeah, and then James does a classic, uh, runs out into the street and screams, why? It's a very, yeah, I have that noted here. It's a classic. <laughs> and he has that sort of scream. That's just like, it's a little bit too high pitched. It's not like a very like I know. powerful, like I pathos. Know. Why? It's Dude, a little it's bit more awesome. like a whine. Like, <laughs> why? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair to him, I probably couldn't be able to do that either, but I'm not an actor, yeah. so. <laughs> so anyway, um, Maddie is just kind of like, you know, obviously this is a lot to handle, all this drama happening. So Maddie is crying on Leland's shoulder, just saying, like, all I wanted to do is just, you know, all I know is that I lost my cousin who I loved very much. But now that I'm here, it's like almost as if I'm Laura and all this drama. Again, this sort of like dark magnetism of Laura is sort of reverberating through her life. 
And Leland is very sweet. By the way, I mean, just I know I've said it before. Ray Wise, the guy who plays Leland, he's just the best actor. It's just his a look. Total pro. Just his demeanor. Just I'm, I know. The way that he does everything is just like the best. I know. Uh, and I'm not the only one saying that. Like everybody I know, including like people I've talked to online and stuff who love Twin Peaks, they all just think this guy is the best. He's so good. Um, so anyway, he's like consoling her and being like the perfect sort of like uh, kindly like sitcom, you know, parental figure like, look, honey, like you just want to go back to the way things were. And so do I. And silly old life just won't cooperate with us, will it? You know, and like, just really <laughs> consoling her like in that very it's almost like a full house like <laughs> episode, like the way that he's consoling her so perfectly effectively. Um, but then they come in and arrest him. Um, so yeah, the inference there is that when they were hypnotizing Dr. Jacoby, he actually said like, Oh, I know him. It was Leland Palmer. Um, they arrest him. Mm. Uh, finally, last thing that happens is that, uh, Donna goes back to visit Harold again, uh, and finds Laura's secret second diary, which Harold has in his possession. And that's where we leave it with episode 10. Yeah. I like how I wonder how you can tell it's uh, Laura's diary. Oh, because it says this is the diary of Laura Palmer. Okay, cool. Normal thing, yeah. Normal thing for everybody. That's how you know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, man, this is a great one. Yeah, I mean, it's still a really good episode. I mean, we're we're in this thing now where season two obviously has this bad reputation, but the thing that people often I think forget or short sell about season two is that everything at the very beginning of season two, all the way up until you find out who the killer is, uh, is actually some of the best stuff that twin peaks ever did. Um, you know, like I said, when we were talking about it, like the, the, the Lynch directed debut of season two with the giant and the, the guy giving the thumbs up, uh, and just all of the great stuff that happens in there. Um, that, that, that's the, that's some of the best twin peaks stuff of all time. Um, yeah. so anyway, yeah, it's, it's still very good. We're totally in the prime, uh, right here. The next episode is great also. Um, and then, yeah, it, it's not going to go downhill for quite a little while yet, but in the next episode, they do mention, uh, Mr. Eckhart for the first time. And we do start to get, uh, MT Wentz, uh, and Mr. Tajimura showing up. So, I mean... <laughs> You're starting to smell <laughs> the smells of uh, cheese sneaking into Twin Peaks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you, you do get Toads, too. Yeah, so Toad rolls. Yeah, sweet. definitely. Where's Toad's like spinoff when they think, series? Uh, MT1 sh- shows up. And they, have, they have to put Toad in the back because he's just so gross. Yeah, and if you leave him unsupervised in the back, he immediately starts eating out of like the prep table. Like He's got some sort of like big spoon. Like He's contaminating all the food. <laughs> no, he's just like so. He's like a dog. You just can't leave. Him, you can't leave him alone. Yeah, can't leave stuff on the edge of the table. It'll jump up and take it off. Right. <laughs> uh, okay, so that's all coming up next. I guess in the interest of time, should we save that for next time? Well, yeah. I mean, I got to get to bed. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't have enough time to do another episode. All right. Um. Yeah, we'll get well, into. I'm going to have to rewatch Laura's Secret Diary before our next recording. Um, don't don't twist my arm too hard okay yeah i mean if you insist (laughs) um okay yeah we'll talk about uh episode 204 aka episode 11 uh next time 
Um, I guess in the meantime, and everybody let us presidential know. candidate's going to be assassinated yeah. in the meantime. <laughs> yeah, or just we'll talk about that, or just fall over dead from natural causes, <laughs> which is very likely. Uh, yeah, let us know what you think. The Brazen Heads Podcast at gmail.com. All right. Well, hey, good episode, buddy. All right. Always fun talking. TP. All right. Later.